0: Welcome to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 11, Dead Man Working, Part 4, A Theological Reflection. Having completed our survey of Dead Man Working by Carl Sederstrom and Peter Fleming, published by Zero Books in 2012, the question arises, how does one reflect upon and respond theologically to their rather gloomy depiction of the world of work within the post-industrial landscape of corporatised labour. Given that this podcast is dedicated to, among other things, the development of a Christian theology of work, it follows that a theological response to Sederstrom and Fleming's analysis necessarily proceeds from who Christians say God is, how the relationship between God and humanity operates, and the implications of this relationship for humanity's relations with itself and with the non-human ecology of which it is a part. Only once this theological articulation has occurred can we then proceed to address the issues raised in Sederstrom and Fleming's book. Who then do Christians say God is? Christianity is a monotheistic faith. That is to say, Christians declare that there is only one God, who is source and ground of all being, who was revealed to the Hebrew people in the course of their sacred history, and who in and through the person of Jesus Christ, forever sealed and made effective God's promise to the world, as revealed in that sacred history through the scriptural witness of the Old and New Testaments. But unlike Judaism or Islam, Christianity is also a differentiated monotheistic faith. Which is to say, Christians say that although there is only one God, the Godhead itself consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are of one being and substance, equal in majesty and glory, co-eternal and co-extant, but who are also separate, distinct, and unconfused. In other words, Christians understand God to be triune, that is to say, a trinity, three persons in one being. Now, I'm not going to get into the complexities and nuances of Trinitarian theology. What is important to hold on to here. Is the fact that because Christians declare that God in God's own being consists of three persons in one being, this means that each of the persons of the Godhead relate to one another personally. They coexist in a mutual relationship. The significance of this is that Christians understand God in God's own being to be relational. It is in God's very nature to exist in relationship with others. Thus, contrary to the notions that are often expressed through popular culture, or in critiques of Christianity, or indeed even within popular piety in Christianity itself, God is not a remote deity removed from the world and the lives of humankind, but a relational divinity who seeks out humanity. For the very purpose of engaging them in relationship. It follows from this that if God in God's own being is relational, and that as a consequence God seeks out humankind to engage relationally with us, then God's will for all people is that we live in intentional, covenantal relationship with one another, and with the non-human ecology of which we are a part. In this context, Covenantal refers not to a quid pro quo contractual arrangement in which the parties agree to what each side will get out of and put into the relationship. Rather, it refers to a desire for faithful coexistence, one that recognises the needs of the self and the other as mutually intertwined and interdependent. Of course, it's not possible for humans to enter into a covenant per se with the non-human ecology. Rather, in this context, faithful coexistence refers to our responsibility as sentient beings to nurture, respect and preserve the wider ecosystem of which we are a part and upon whose integrity our own existence depends. What does any of this have to do with a theology of work, let alone with Sederstrom and Fleming's book? In the first instance, it draws our attention to the fact that work, understood from the Christian perspective, is human activity which fulfills God's will for human life and for the non-human ecology. In other words, Christian theology vests human work with the task of participating in God's will that human life be characterized by faithful interrelationship and sustaining coexistence with wider creation. Work is not merely an end in itself, nor does it serve merely human purposes. Rather, it is part of God's unfolding schema of creation in which human beings are active and participatory agents. If you cast your minds back to episode 7, and the definition of work which I constructed as part of the series, What is Work?, I argued that work is human activity which meets the practical and existential needs of humankind, in a manner that facilitates relational coexistence between humans, as well as humans and the non-human ecology, and which, moreover, affirms both human dignity and the integrity of wider creation. Thus it is that the instrumentality of work is qualified and subordinated by its role within God's desire for covenantal relationship with humankind, which desire likewise seeks expression and embodiment within human relationships, as well as humanity's relationship with the surrounding environment. Activity which is contrary to this covenantal imperative may be classified as labour or toil, but it cannot from the Christian perspective be properly understood as work. Turning then to dead man working, it is noteworthy that Sederstrom and Fleming invoke the present fashion for zombie apocalypticism to describe the landscape of post-industrialised corporatized labour. Indeed, the Australian economist and academic John Quiggin has labelled the superstructure of neoliberal economic theory under which much of the world presently operates as zombie economics, that is to say, a system of dead ideas, which nonetheless maintains their grip on the way in which the global economy is ordered and structured. For Sederstrom and Fleming, the zombie economy manifests itself in corporatist capitalism's ability to infect and colonise every aspect of human life, reducing our humanity to a ghastly simulacrum of real life whose only function is to perpetuate the status quo of the corporatist state. Corporatist capitalism, they argue, exists only for its own sake and work by hijacking human life has become the primary vehicle through which this self-perpetuation occurs. From the point of view of a Christian theology of work, it is worth noting Sederstrom and Fleming's identification of the self-referential nature of capitalism. All capitalism, they argue, exists only for its own sake, and whether manifested as early 20th century Fordian mechanisms of worker control or as early 21st-century processes of appropriation of the human essence, capitalism's purpose, they argue, is to maintain itself through the exploited labour of its human subjects. The extent to which Sederstrom and Fleming's assertions accurately apply to all manifestations of capitalism is debatable. However, the value of their argument lies in their identification of the tendency of human lives to be co-opted by economic systems, so that human existence itself becomes servant to the continued operation of the system in question, rather than that system serving the needs of human interrelationship and coexistence with nature. From the Christian perspective, there is a key scriptural passage that illustrates the danger involved in this co-option. This is located in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, who want to know whether or not it is lawful for devout Jews to pay taxes to the Roman Emperor. Now the first thing to note is that this was a question put to Jesus in the context of a highly charged political situation. The Jewish people, like all the subject peoples of the Roman Empire, were under occupation by a foreign aggressor so the question of whether or not Jews should pay taxes to Rome was an unusually sensitive one. Depending on Jesus' answer, his response to the question could be interpreted either as an assertion of Jewish religious and national independence, or as an incitement to collaboration with an enemy power. The second point to note is that the religious leaders who put the question to Jesus and who felt under threat from his popular ministry, were entirely aware of the double bind in which he was potentially being placed. Either he could be denounced to the Roman authorities as a rebel, or his credibility with the people could be destroyed. Jesus, of course, is aware of the trap. In response to the question, he asks to see a Roman coin, and when he asks whose head and title appears on the coin and is told that it is the emperor's, he responds with the now famous line, Give to the emperor that which is the emperor's, and to God that which belongs to God. Now some people have interpreted this response as support for the doctrine of the separation of church and state. Others have dismissed it as a cop-out, or described it as a clever piece of political manoeuvring. But it seems to me that if we examine Jesus' response at a deeper level, we see that he is responding to the issue of taxation itself, not to the question of whether or not tax ought to be paid. In other words, Jesus' response asks the question, what is the purpose of taxation? Is it to prop up oppressive regimes, be they secular or religious, or is it to contribute something to the wider life of the human community, again whether secular or religious? In responding the way he does, Jesus confronts us with the politics of taxation. That is to say, he is not making an argument one way or the other as to whether or not we ought to pay taxes. He is confronting us with the assertion, that when taxation is used to support the process of imperialism or colonisation, when it is used as a means for extorting wealth and income from subject populations, when it is a mechanism for propping up the power of secular or religious despots, then it represents an appropriation of human life, the subjugation of human need to the self-perpetuation of an economic or political system. Human relational living and coexistence with the natural world depends, among other things, upon humans contributing to the economic and political structures that enable covenantal life to occur. But when taxation, for example, simply becomes a means to perpetuate these systems absent their connection to human life, they become oppressive forces degrading human dignity, contrary to God's relational nature, and covenantal will. In this context, Jesus' response to whether or not devout Jews ought to pay taxes to Rome is a barbed critique of both the secular and religious powers of his time, whose power was divorced from the human dignity and covenantal co-relationship they were meant to serve. The point in relation to dead man working is that the argument Sederstrom and Fleming mount as to the appropriating nature of work in the post-industrial context is in fact nothing new. Humans have always had a tendency to place the cart before the horse by subjecting human life to systems of economic and social control, rather than understanding those systems as being in service to human life. As the Czech economist Tomáš Sédláček points out in his book The Economics of Good and Evil, even humanity's oldest surviving story, The Epic of Gilgamesh, contains an example of this tendency. Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk, decides to construct a wall around the city in order to protect the inhabitants. But he becomes so obsessed with building the wall in the shortest time possible, and in increasing his workers' productivity and efficiency, that he bans them from having contact with their wives and children in order to effectively install a regime of around-the-clock construction. As Sedlacek notes, Gilgamesh has realised that human sociability is an impediment to economic efficiency, and that in banning contact between workers and their families, Gilgamesh in effect gives expression to the central dilemma of all economic theory how to prevent human nature from interfering with economic productivity and efficiency. In the epic of Gilgamesh, the original human need for protection becomes subordinated to Gilgamesh's desire for the maximally efficient and productive completion of the construction project, and to this end he utilizes the coercive power of his kingship to deploy all the systems of economic control at his disposal. Thus it is that human economic theory evokes one of the key manifestations of human brokenness, our tendency to ignore our own nature as relational beings, in favour of perceived notions of material development, social and cultural advancement, and improvements in economic performance. Even Adam Smith, the so-called father of modern economics, who was, it should be pointed out, a moral philosopher, and not an economist in the modern technocratic sense of the term, posited the benefits of economic activity in materialist and societal terms, rather than in its existential dimensions. The land of the living dead, which Sederstrom and Fleming articulate as the landscape of post-industrial corporatist capitalism, is merely the latest manifestation of a reality as old as human civilization itself. What is perhaps different is that instead of trying to ban human sociability as Gilgamesh does, Sadeström and Fleming argue that the modern corporation has appropriated that sociability in order to recreate human life in the likeness of the corporatist state. This being the case, the role which theology, and I would argue Christian theology especially plays, is to draw human attention to the wrong way about nature of the assumptions and presuppositions from which our cultures and societies proceed. Just as Jesus challenged the understanding of taxation as an instrument of control by secular or religious institutions, so Christian theological reflection on work in modernity must challenge the central assumption of economic theory that human dignity and relational integrity are achieved by maximizing productivity and efficiency. Indeed, Christian theology must put the argument for an entirely new understanding of work, one that is located in God's desire for covenantal interrelationship and in work service to that desire, rather than work subjection to the imperatives of corporate profitability or the assertions of economic theory. Christian theology must aid in the recovery of an understanding of work as the servant of human dignity and ecological integrity, rather than as the instrument of human subjection to the claims of the powerful or the prerogatives of the rich. Indeed, it must recover an understanding of economics itself as the servant of human covenantal coexistence rather than the means of reducing human life to an input into productivity equations and efficiency measurements. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. In the next episode I will continue this theological reflection on dead man working, teasing out the convergences and divergences between Sederstrom and Fleming's critique of work in modernity and a Christian perspective of work in human life. But that, however, is all for now. Many thanks to everyone who has been listening so far and to those of you who have supplied comments, feedback, or suggestions. To leave your thoughts on this podcast, or to offer any ideas, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com, or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.